Hi, I'm Allison Hare, a former corporate executive on a quest to help you and me stop performing our life, but live it fully and be completely present for it without burning ourselves to the ground. Ha, how about that? Welcome to the Late Learner Podcast, where we take old, broken paradigms and we create new ones that just plain work better for you. So what are we late learning today? Well, we as women, we're in a moment right now. I mean, we are juggling the hustle, the high expectations, perimenopause, post-pandemic chaos, kids' hormones, our own hormones, changing relationships, work demands. It is a lot. And I bet you're feeling overwhelmed. And I get it. It's a thing, right? But today's guest, Cheryl Ann Skolnicki, who is the CEO, founder, and podcast host of Brilliant Balance, she has the wisdom and insights to help you masterfully balance it all. But before we solve all the world's problems in today's episode, let's get to the good stuff. What is stuff? It's a surprisingly true, useful, fun fact. And as you might be in a shopping mode lately, undoubtedly, you've seen the super bougie, dirty ass street sneakers with the signature star on it, Golden Goose. They are made in Italy. They are curiously hand distressed, which means that they are dirty on purpose. They're beat up and they are all the rage on the streets and will set you back at least five hundos. So I found the best Golden Goose dupes for you. Here are the top five sneakers recommended by experts that are like Golden Goose. So number one is the vintage Havana Gadol. I have a pair of these. They have glitter and sparkle. I love them. Number two is Steve Madden Reza White Star. These have Steve Madden platform soles. So they literally give you some elevation and they have a minimal and classic take on them. Number three are Vintage Havana Grande. Number four is P448 John. These are a little more pricey than the other dupes and also considered luxury, but not as expensive, not nearly as expensive as the Golden Goose. And number five is the New Day Candace Lace-Ups. These are the most affordable and they don't come dirty, which for me, I love. I don't want dirty sneakers. I like clean, crisp, white sneakers. Now, before we talk with Cheryl Ann, I have two big announcements for you. First, my brand new website is live. (gasps) I've been working on it behind the scenes for months. It is beautiful. It's interactive and loaded with offers to make your life easier. You can head to allisonhair.com. You can download the free energy guide and explore. And also the second announcement is if you've dreamt of launching a podcast, I've got an eight week program kicking off next week where fun fact, I used to help people launch their podcasts. Some of the biggest podcasts in the world have started from my program. I am bringing it back out for a beta program. So if you are interested or kind of have been thinking about it, DM or email me the word podcast to allison at allisonhair.com and I'll give you more information. All right, let's talk to Cheryl Ann Skolnicki of Brilliant Balance. Okay, this is super exciting for me. We're here with Brilliant Balance's Cheryl Ann Skolnicki. So glad to have you here. So happy to be here with you. Here's what's cool. You work with high-performing, ambitious women. A lot of them are mothers. 
I would love to see where are people struggling? Oh, that's such a good question, Allison. I mean, one of the things that's the most fun about my job is that I get to stay really tapped into what's on the minds of women, or maybe more importantly, what's weighing on their hearts, right? What's exciting them, what's scaring them. And I think the the thing that I really see that's happening right now is this growing sense of overwhelm, of an inability to keep up. And it makes a ton of sense. I mean, you and I are living in this world. Like we're we are the same population that I'm serving through my work and you're serving through yours. We we sit right in the middle of that community. And if you look at some of the reasons why that sense of overwhelm may be increasing, I think it's that the collective expectations of us to keep up hmm. continue to grow. Right? The news cycles are coming faster than ever. The ability to just access information is uh, more robust than ever. So we're just taking more in. The standards of care that we're expected to provide as parents are growing. The potential that we have professionally is growing. And it's just like a rising tide of expectations that's making a lot of us feel like we can't keep up. You know, we're super interested in being great at all those things but not always sure that we can really keep up. And so I think that sense of overload or overwhelm is that's the number one thing I'm hearing a lot about. Yeah, so I'm wondering how does this manifest in real life? Because I think that we normalize our overwhelm where we don't we normalize the pain of overwhelm. So I'm wondering what are signals that you're seeing that are manifesting the overwhelm and it looks like what? So I think you could look at it Maybe physically and mentally, we could get into the emotional and spiritual side of it as well. But physically, I think it looks like difficulty sleeping, right? That's one of the first physical symptoms people might see. Not feeling particularly good in their body, like a, either because they're not taking great care of themselves with food and movement and all the things we know to do, or because that chronic sense of stress is landing as like pain and fatigue and impaired mobility, right? So there are definite physical signs. Those don't tend to be the first thing. So for people who are seeing those, it probably means we're pretty far down the path. Mm. Mentally, it's a sense of brain fog or like people will describe it as feeling spinny. Like I, my thoughts are just spinning and I can't pin them down. That sort of racing thoughts, the chronic to-do list that's just building and building would be a very clear mental symptom. So I refer to that as cognitive overload. It's like there is so much on our minds that it is just creating a level of weight. And I think emotionally, it starts to become a sense of disconnect disconnect from other people or disconnect from ourselves where there's this level of almost resentment like why is everybody asking so much of me and why is nobody helping me hmm. you know i think hmm. those are two questions we're not necessarily saying out loud but really are running through our minds over and over again and and that can almost lead to like the word existential crisis may go a little bit far <laughs> but a spiritual crisis of like does this matter? Am I getting this right? Does, am I doing this life the way I'm supposed to be doing this life? So it really starts to run around all of those aspects of our well-being left unchecked. I'm stuck on the thought of like the resentment. I need somebody mm -hmm. to help me. But it also is not in our nature to ask for help because we are the fixers. Do you see that to be true? Right. 
Yes. I think we want them to just show up like on a white horse, preferably, uh-huh. you know, in a super handsome body. <laughs> that would be <laughs> right. great. Like, all right, we were kind of fed this fairy tale of like, someday someone will come and rescue us. Yes. And I think that that runs very deep that when we get overloaded, we're like, okay, I'm starting to look around for who's going to ride in and rescue me. Whether we're looking for an individual, most often our spouse or partner to help us, whether we're looking to be sort of rescued by familial help, like parents or siblings or like that kind of the old collective of family that used to be around us, or whether we're looking for society at large, like policies to change and practices to change so that things become easier for us we're often looking outside of ourselves. And a huge part of my belief is that we have to start by looking inside of ourselves Mm -hmm. for what do we have a level of agency over? What can we affect to start to drop that resentment and drop that sense that like it's someone else's fault? Who's got time though, Cheryl Ann? Let's talk about this. Who has got time when you have packed out your schedules so tight, doing all the things, the resentment is building, Yeah. I mean, look, Allison, you and I, well, I think we agree on it would be great if all of this weren't landing on the shoulders of women like you and me, right? I think we can both agree. Like, it's awesome when we can do things to rebalance the workload at home or rebalance the workload in our workplaces. And I have a lot of heart for those conversations. So what I mean when I say look within is not do more. Mm-hmm. Right. Immediately when we think about doing more or kind of like suck it up, it's there's a sense that it will take more time. And that's a resource that we don't have any more of. What I'm actually talking about is reconsidering how we get things done, really reevaluating where is our time and our energy going. Cause we don't like they those are two resources. The energy that we wake up with every day, which you know, I think of it as like a renewable resource. We can go get more energy yes. through good practices. And our time, which is not a renewable resource, right? Like we're going to use the time and then it's gone. We can't get it back. And to some extent, we have the resource of our talent or our capability or our gifts. Like what are we going to what, – what can we bring into um, the encounters that we have every day? And making good use of those resources, our energy, our time, our talent – That's really, when we optimize that, that's when I think we feel good. And where I think a lot of us get it wrong, and I got this wrong for a long time, was we're so busy doing, doing, doing on autopilot that we don't take that pause to reevaluate. You know, sometimes I think of it like double clicking. You know, when you're you're reading a news article, like, I don't know, The Skim or The Morning Brew or Morning Brew, you're sort of in the, and you find something you're interested in and you double click so that it takes you to like an expanded form of that article. That's what I think we need to be doing with these pressure points in our lives is like pausing long enough to double click on them and say, what is really going on here? Hmm. Why is this such a chronic source of frustration for me? Why is this area one that I'm continuing to invest energy and time and talent in and I don't feel like I'm getting the payoff, right? And that's where we can start to redistribute some of the work to other people. And I teach a lot of strategies for how to do that. Or we can just not do it. Like we actually can learn that the world will keep spinning if that particular thing doesn't get done anymore, like maybe at all. So there is real freedom in that. It doesn't actually take more time. It takes less. You know, I I think it kind of begs the question for a first impossible question of is, is the answer do more or do less? 
And I think there are people like Kate Northrup has written a book about doing less. And I felt like there was a cognitive dissonance in that where I, I feel like some of the answer is doing more of what you love to get energy to remove some of the things yeah. that you don't want to do. Yeah. And so I wonder if there is some truth in the do more versus do less. And and again, it's an impossible question, right? Well, one of the ways I've been thinking about it is, is it a sequence of events or maybe better said a cycle? First of all, if we're saying we're overloaded, we cannot do more. There isn't a do more, right? That's going to fit because we're already saying like, I am exhausted and depleted and completely overwhelmed. So it has to start with doing less of something. And the word I think about all the time is curating. Like if you were building a museum exhibit, you wouldn't just keep adding, right? You'd have to say like, what am I going to take out to make room for this new thing? So there's this ability to continuously upgrade. Where is our time and energy really being invested? So I don't know. You tell me what you think of this. My point of view is it starts with doing less of something that is not providing a particularly high return or like doesn't uniquely need to be done by us. Maybe somebody else could do this thing and it would be super high value for them. And that frees up the space. Then you get to replace that if you choose to with something that has a higher return to you or to other people around you. So we're sort of constantly, like remember that old weed and feed? It's, it's like that. You're constantly pulling something out in order to put something new in. And it's the intentionality about the return that I think it becomes so magical when we really think about it. I'll give you an example. I was talking with a relatively new client last week, and she was evaluating a couple of job offers. She had been out of work for a little bit. She was re-entering, kind of had really good interview cycle, and she had a lot of different offers, I think three or four that she was evaluating. And it was coming down to these top two, one of which was going to involve a pretty substantial commute, and the other one of which was about 10 or 15 minutes away from her home, if memory serves, okay? And when we did the math, I like very quickly did the math in this conversation with her. It was nine hours a week of commuting time involved in the one job offer relative to the other. And my question was like, what's that worth to you? What's it worth to get nine hours back that you have discretion? It's value. Right. So yes, do you make more money in one job? I don't know. I mean, that was all part of the equation. But what is that worth to have nine hours a week back that you get to repurpose for things that might have a higher return than sitting in your car? Hmm. So, And she literally was like, mind blown. I had not thought about that as an element of my decision. And as soon as she thought about it, it made the decision so clear which one, which, you know, job she wanted to take. So I think that's a good example of like, we're not actually talking about taking more time. We're saying, let's be a little more intentional about where our time is going so that we're sure we're getting the return. So I think that that kind of leads into the thought around expectations versus choices, because we've kind of backed ourselves into a lot of expectations that, by the way, we love, we love that we are doing all the things. That's kind of where we built our identity off of, of like, we love it. We love having a packed calendar, but then they turn into expectations. It's kind of like, you know, the friends that talk about, I'm always the one that initiates everything because they've never asked the other person. They've always initi yeah. you've been the initiator and they're like, I wish somebody would invite me once in a while. I didn't have to organize everything. So I want to understand around the expectations we put ourselves in. And I know that 
being at choice and understanding where you do have choice is something that has really been a focus for you lately as well. It has been. I I think expectations is such a heavy word. Sometimes I say the heaviest thing we're carrying is the weight of expectations. It's it's heavy. And they come from everywhere, Allison. In my experience, we pick them up like lint rollers, you know, as we go through life. It's like there are expectations that we've been carrying around because of how our parents lived their lives, what they thought was important or not important. Educators can lay expectations on us about not wasting our talents or kids who are great, girls particular today who are great at STEM are being basically told, you know, thou shalt go into a STEM field, even if that's not where their passion is, because they're great at math or great at science. And look, I think we should have more women in STEM, but I think they should want to be there. I think there's expectations we pick up in our workplaces through the culture of what do people around here do? How early do we get in? How late do we stay? Do we take weekend meetings? You know, that there's like cultural expectations within individual workplaces neighborhoods can have certain expectations. You know, do all the moms go to the bus stop in the morning or not? I think the hard thing about expectations is sometimes we're totally unaware that we've internalized them as an expectation. You know, the words are like, well, everybody's doing it this way. It's kind of like a keeping up with the Joneses Mm -hmm. thing. And they're really insidious in that way. And eventually, again, until we take stock and go, why am I doing these things I'm doing? We don't really have the chance to look at who handed us that expectation and did we really mean to accept it? Did we really mean to take it on as our own? Because early days, like I don't know what your life was like in your early mid-20s, you're kind of getting married, having kids. You can do all the things. I've had no problem doing all the things early on. But then it's like it just keeps being added to cumulatively until you're going to break. And so we never learn the skill of taking things out. And so I think that's the hard thing about expectations is they come from everywhere. Some of them are self-inflicted, and we really have to wrestle with them if we want some freedom in terms of where our time is going and, and where it's not. Hi, it's Ellison. Thanks for listening. Did you know that some of the ideas shared on this podcast are something I can help you implement in your own life? Listen, I know you are a smart, capable cookie and accomplished. And sometimes what helps you move the needle faster when you're considering, what do I shift to make this easier? What do I shift to make this feel more fulfilling? Sometimes you just need somebody along with you helping you every step of the way. For a free breakthrough call, go to allisonhair.com and let's discover more about you and see if we can help. I love what you're saying, and I'm very curious about your own journey. So you have such an impressive background. You're Mm -hmm. Ivy League educated. You've checked all the boxes, an MBA from Emory, a 15-year career as an executive, a corporate executive. And then you make this screeching left pivot Mm -hmm. and start this world. Like, what were you thinking, Cheryl Ann? Like, you did. Right. You were like the picture of any parent's pride and joy. And not that you threw that all away, but you made a very unconventional turn when the world probably expected you to do something different. So how did that all come about? Well, first of all, those are all very kind things to say. And yes, a lot of the things in my history are, they get a lot of accolades from kind of the mainstream like American 
idea of what we do to be successful. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about in the land of expectations, right? It is the dream to say, go to a great college and get an advanced degree and work for a really established company and make a lot of money and climb the ladder. That is all telegraphing power and security and prestige and status. And those are great things if you love what you're doing, right? If it comes with a sense of, and I love what I'm doing, and it's using my talents and it's I, it's making a change in the world that I really care about, and the amount of time and energy it's taking from me, I feel really solid about giving, right? If that whole equation squares, awesome. But pieces of that equation stopped squaring for me. What did that look like? Yeah. I didn't feel great about the change that if if I was the most successful I possibly could have been in my work at Procter & Gamble, then people would use my brand of laundry detergent more often than another, right? That just seemed absurd to me that that was the biggest change I was going to be able to affect. Mm. It was like I could be the pinnacle of success and instead of gain being a billion dollars, it would be like a billion two or a billion five. I like at some point couldn't get behind that of I'm going to give all of this time and energy and talent to something like what brand of laundry detergent people use. All due respect to the people doing that work, they've found a way to connect it to satisfaction and purpose. It just wasn't squaring for me anymore. And I started looking at like, what's the change I want to see in the world? Who do I want to help? And what problems do I want to solve? And also, am I really getting to fully use my talents, my gifts in service to that? So once I got really clear about what mine were, like communication was real high on the list of things that... I was like innately good at. I wasn't really being asked to do a ton of communication in my role. I was being asked to do a ton of strategy and analysis and leadership. And while I could do those things, I didn't love them. Like I didn't love strategy and analysis as much as I loved communicating and the creativity that came with that. So the use of my particular gifts was important. And then like, what was the change? I wanted to work with women. I wanted to ease their suffering. I wanted to look around at people like me and go, what are the biggest problems that they're wrestling with? And can I get in there next to them and help them? And so that was the source of my pivot. It had a lot of trade-offs, Allison. You made some of the same ones. It's like my income went to zero. You had three kids. I had, yeah. Three kids. This is not like you were just sitting on a a lottery ticket and you're like, this sounds fun. (laughs) Right. And I think that I'm a planner and I'm pretty risk averse by nature. So it's even more shocking that I would make this kind of a decision. Yeah. Here were a couple things that made it easier. I felt very sure that if I had made a really wrong turn in this path, and if just I could not figure out how to build a business and nobody wanted to do this with me, that I could go back and get another job. Like I felt like I was marketable enough that if I wanted to go back and get a full-time job working for somebody else, that I, it wasn't like I had shut that door permanently. So my husband and I decided like we'd give it a little time to see how it went. Could we get this thing off the ground? And if I couldn't, I knew that that was the path that I would pursue. And luckily, I have not had to do that. You know, that was oh, 14 years ago that I was leaving Um, my corporate life. Where did you even start back then? Because I imagine people are listening to you going, oh my God, I don't feel purpose in my job. I'm good at it, but I would love to just quit and 
I don't know, start a YouTube channel for macrame or something that I love to do, but never have time to, but that's just not realistic. So I want to double click into that if we can. Well, first of all, I think it's, I think saying it's not realistic is so important because that is the cultural narrative, Mm, right? Is it's mm -hmm. not realistic to quit a well-established job where we're doing something that someone else deems valuable to do something that we think adds value to the world. But you and I both know people who are doing things not that far off from selling macrame, right? Who are making a healthy living doing it. So I'm always going to ask the question, what would have to be true? If somebody came to me tomorrow and said, all right, I've got this macrame idea. I want to run with it. I would say, what would have to be true for that to be viable for you? If that's what your heart is telling you you want to put in the world – Like, what do we need to do here? How much money do you need to make? Okay, if you sell your macrame for this, how do we... I'm always focused on the practical side of it, the math, Mm -hmm. and that was true for me. Okay, so back when I was making the decision, I didn't have a master plan. So this was 2009, fall of 2009. I found the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. They still exist. They were a little more nascent at the time, and I was super passionate about health and wellness. And they were training people in how to become health coaches so that you could kind of put up a shingle and say, I'm going to help people with health coaching. And that was the very first move I made was I decided to get a little bit of training around this idea of I'm passionate about this subject matter and interested in it. So I'm going to learn more about it. And then I'm also going to learn how to turn it into a business. And I would say that got part way there. Like it gave me like training wheels to get started. So the very first services that I sold were akin to what they were teaching, like six-month coaching package, somewhere in the realm of health and wellness. I very quickly made that my own. I added a private chef service. So I hired this amazing cohort of women who were all local to Cincinnati where I live who would go into people's homes and make a week's worth of healthy meals for their families and leave them in the fridge. This was like pre-Blue Apron, pre-HelloFresh, right? This was a very independent idea. And we did that for a few years. It just kept growing in the arena of like coaching and practically equipping women. I did cooking instruction for a while where we were teaching women how to cook so that they could then feel more confident putting these meals on the table. P.S. This is not at all what I do today. No. Right? Which is a very (laughs) important part of the story because there was this initial chapter that kind of served as an interstitial. It was like, it was my transitional path from my corporate life to like, okay, this was my macrame, right? Fully expressed, like, can I really do this in the realm of food? And we did. For four to five years, I ran that business. And then I was like, I honestly, it was a God moment for me, Allison. I felt very, very clear. I was sitting in a Starbucks um, and I was like, this is not the path. You have veered off the path Hmm. and you're chasing this kind of scalable business model. I was getting a lot of advice from um, the entrepreneurial advisors in our city. And I was like working with them on how this thing could scale and could I take on investment because that was the sexy way to do entrepreneurship. And it was going to be so externally validated, just like my degree and my MBA and uh, like one more way to get external validation. And I was like in that Starbucks going, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to start this logistics heavy business that has external funding and it's going to be back to a corporate life for me. And it was terrifying. I remember calling my husband from that Starbucks and saying, I think I have to shut this whole thing down Mm. and I have to get back on course. And 
that is what I did. I mean, that was about five years in and I just completely shut it down. I sold the assets of that business to the women who had been doing the cooking. And I started a blog that eventually led to what Brilliant Balance is today. And it was, it was a it was like the second time in my adult life that I made this big pivot to just start over in the name of trying to get closer to what I really felt called to do. Did you freak out? Like when you're just How's that for a plot uh, twist. It's a big <laughs> plot twist. But like when you're doing this blog, did you have any ideas of a business? Like what were you thinking? Are you like, let me just take six months, a year, whatever it is? That's it's ballsy, right? Cheryl Ann, yeah, it's ballsy. I didn't want it to take that long. It is. Well, and I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, it actually was. <laughs> At the time, it felt necessary. So here's what I was doing. I knew how to have private coaching clients because of what I had done in the first business, which I had called Nourish. And so I was like, well, I can still get private coaching clients. I can coach people one-on-one in packages, right? Like I knew how to sort of execute that. But I'm going to change what I'm coaching them on. I'm going to give myself permission to like broaden the subjects that we might cover in coaching. And so during that transition period, that's what I that's how I was sustaining the business was I was still coaching individuals one-on-one, sometimes in person and sometimes over the phone. It was like a combination. And to anchor this, we're in like 2015, right? So the technology had not caught up in the way that it is today. So in that era, that's what I was doing as a bridge and what I was doing a ton of was writing. Writing, 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 writing. Like, what do I believe? What do I think women are struggling with? If I could change anything for women, what would I want to change? And it was pouring out of me in these kind of glorified mm. journal entries, if you will, mm-hmm. right? I just kept notebooks everywhere, all longhand, because it's the only way I know how to think is with mm. a pencil in my hand. And if you go back and look at those journals today, all the seeds of Brilliant Balance are in there. So the very first thing I did was I turned it into kind of a keynote, like a a talk, a workshop. And I found a few people who were like, yeah, come give this talk. Let's see how it's received. And as soon as I delivered that talk to the first audience, which was the Junior League of Cincinnati, I have a friend who was leading the Junior League at the time, and she was gracious enough to be like, come on in, talk to the Junior League. Let's see what they think. And it was such an – there was so much resonance Mm. in the message. And then it just has continued to refine from there. So I think for me, it was about the ideas. What are the ideas that I want to put out there? Kind of road testing them with individuals and then with bigger groups to see how does this – does anybody care? Is this a problem you're struggling with? Does it feel like it might be a solution? And then that led to – trying to refine it into some kind of offering. And there was a big misstep in 2016 around how to deliver that, that we had to kind of scrap and come back from. But continuing to steer one little step at a time until we got to where we are today is really what the rest of the journey has looked like. It's such an inspiring story. And what I'm thinking about that comes up a lot with people that I work with is judgment and judgment around consequences of making a change. So you have all these accolades like you had talked about and you make this left pivot and all of a sudden I'm a coach now or I'm a consultant or I'm whatever. And I have talked to more people that are so afraid. They are more, they want to make such a big impact, but they are more afraid of updating their LinkedIn for the judgment for people they don't even like. And I want to kind of dive deep into what that looks like around 
the consequences of not making a change versus the judgment that keeps them stuck. Yeah, that is such an important element for the women I coach for sure. And it was a huge element for me. And let's be clear, people judge when you leave a corporate established career. I think there are kind of rumors about why, right? The narrative everyone wanted to assign to me was that I wanted to spend more time with my kids. That was everyone's favorite like narrative. And it wasn't really true. I mean, that was a side benefit. Once I got into this lifestyle, I do have more time available to – I have more discretion over my time and how I can invest it in being available to my kids. And certainly, that was a really big deal, especially when they were younger. Um, They're teenagers now. It's still important now, but it was a really big deal when they were younger. But that wasn't my reason, right? It just made it more comfortable for people to kind of make assumptions Mm. about why someone would do something that objectively looked so crazy. I also think people loved to call it like your little business. Like I don't know where Uh. that language comes from, but it made me crazy. People People are dirty. You still running your little business? (laughs) I was like, ew. not a way to you know win over my heart. Um, but I think that, again, is it's a really discriminatory narrative that we put on women. I, I fundamentally believe if I had been a man and I left my job to start a business, people would be using the words entrepreneur from day one. It would have been a startup, a new venture, your entrepreneur. Totally. Like That was not the language people were assigning to me. It was kind of this notion of Like it was a hobby that I was somehow going to make a little money on the side doing this thing. And that certainly wasn't my vision. That was what felt like judgment was when people used that language, it felt dismissive. Mm. So again, part of that though, Allison, is what was driving me toward making bad choices around, well, what if I take on investment capital? What if I look to have a scalable model? What if I bring in partners? None of which I wanted to do. I just knew it would look better to these, you know, this kind of faceless crowd of critics. So really important that I got back in touch with what was I really trying to do here? As long as I knew what it looked like from the inside and the impact that I was making in the lives of these women, did it really matter how people conceptualized it? And the truth is, once I stopped worrying about it over time, I think the external impression just caught up Hmm. with what it really was. I think it's important to kind of walk people through that too, because it is real. Like the judgment, we judge, they, they judge all of that stuff. And I think it's important to kind of see how do you quiet because I think more of it is your own judge. Oh, yeah. What does it mean? If? It's a projection. Well, not only is it a projection, but it's mm-hmm. also a value based of where does my value lie? Does it lie in the title, the prestige, the the money, the ego, whatever it is? And how do we quiet our own judgment? I don't know if you see this. I certainly see this with the women that I serve, like who are in our community within Brilliant Balance. There are a handful of really uncomfortable emotions that block a lot of the actions that women might want to take. So we were talking earlier about expectations and what does it really take to drop some of those expectations and make different choices. And if I look at what's the final frontier around a willingness to make those choices, it is a tolerance for some of those uncomfortable emotions. And my experience is the big four are guilt, 
someone else's life is going to be worse if I do this. FOMO, I'm going to miss something important that I wanted if I do this. Judgment, like what will other people think? And then the fourth one I call loss of control. So sometimes we won't make a choice to stop doing something ourselves because we're like, if I give that up, I'm also giving up the way it gets done. Hmm. So guilt, FOMO, judgment, loss of control. I think those are the four big enemies of our ability to get what we really want. And if we can have a little bit more tolerance for those emotions and trust that they'll pass, we can have a lot more things that we want. Hmm. Where do you see that people make the biggest changes? What do I think is the biggest change? Yeah. What do you think needs to be true? That gets them the most benefit? Yes. For them to make that mental switch. Yeah. I think the first thing, like sitting at the center of it is giving themselves permission to try something different. Mm -hmm. Just giving themselves permission to evaluate, did I make this decision with full intentionality or did I somehow kind of operate on autopilot and end up here? And reevaluating that decision, just permission to reevaluate, I think is really the first step. From there, I think the choices come down to what is causing you the most pain? Like where is your time and energy going that you have the highest level of resentment over or pain over? Or just in absolute, where is something that really is taking up like the commute example before? you may, That person might not have had a ton of resentment about their commute, but it sure was taking up a big chunk of hours. So being able to look at your life and say, both energetically and from a time standpoint, where are my drains? What is really draining my time or my energy that I could potentially get back and repurpose? Because Allison, so many women just will tell me, I can't. I can't. I wish I had time to exercise. I wish I had time to meditate. I wish I had time to have dates with my husband. I wish I, blah, 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 blah. And the reality is we have the time. It has to come from somewhere else. So sometimes we go through this work and they go, well, in this season, I'm at peace now with where my time is going, even if the thing doesn't change, even if they still don't have time Mm. to meditate. If they're at peace with that collection of choices and they see them as a choice, that's a win because the suffering eases, right? And sometimes we go, oh my gosh, I'm not at peace with these choices. I am putting something else ahead. Why am I doing that? Then we can pragmatically make the change and we kind of get to the same benefit through a different a different path, right? You can either really change the thing or you can change how you think about it. Are y'all hearing and both this? Work. This is brilliant. This is brilliant, Cheryl Ann. <laughs> I'm telling you, we're going to solve all the world's problems. So, you know, this podcast is called Late Learner. What have you learned lately that you were wrong about? Oh, (laughs) so many things. (laughs) So the biggest thing I've learned is that my way is not always the right way. I would just that generically, that's how I would say it. I think that the phrase, my thinking on this has evolved is one of the most powerful things we can say. Mm. And that's why I love the title of your podcast. Because giving ourselves permission to say with no shame and no guilt for our over our former choices, my thinking on this has evolved is such an empowered way of being. And you just embody this with this podcast. So for me, my thinking is evolving all the time. And 
that my way is not the best way or the right way. It's just the way I knew is that's definitely something that I'm learning lately. Mm, I love it. So how can people get in touch with you, Cheryl Ann? Thank you. Easiest way is the website. So it's brilliant-balance.com. All the free goodies are there. All the ways to get in touch are there. You can connect to my podcast from there. So it's always a good first step to just subscribe to the podcast and kind of find out if what I said today vibed. Maybe some of those episodes will too. And then we can go from there. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl Ann. Thanks for having me, Allison. Huge thanks to Cheryl Ann Skolnicki of Brilliant Balance for offering so much wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for us. I've linked all of her info in the show notes and her podcast, Brilliant Balance, is one of my weekly go-tos. It is so good. And as for you, what action are you going to take as a result of this? I invite you to share and apply these ideas in this episode in your own circles. And if you want to have some wise counsel along with you for the ride... Go to allisonhair.com and schedule a free breakthrough call with me. All of the links are in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. And until the next episode drops, I'll see you on the socials.